When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. may be that the entire shape, trajectory, even outcome of the public inquiry is different because of the decision made by The Telegraph to publish these messages. It's looking like a very good period for the so-called conspiracy theorists, isn't it? (laughs) Diversity does not mean the pluralism, diversity of viewpoints and ideas. You look at what's happening, it's the exact opposite. The Windsor Framework... (laughs) Sounds like the royal clothesline, doesn't it, really? Clothes horse. The winds of framework. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's another new tsunami co-pilot, so strap yourself in for a rip-roaring journey on the rocket of right thinking. Rishi Sunak's brokered a new deal with the EU, but will it hold the road in the House of Commons and get the Northern Ireland Assembly up and running? Gloomier-than-thou forecasts from the Office of Budget Responsibility turned out to be just that, as some of us predicted. So far from being cash-strapped before the spring budget on March the 15th, Jeremy Hunt suddenly flushed with cash. More headaches for the Chancellor, as lobbying for both higher spending and lower taxes intensifies. And then, of course, there's the story dominating the headlines, the Telegraph's lockdown files. These lift the lid on the hundreds and thousands of messages, 2.3 million words, three times more than the Bible, of lockdown-era WhatsApp messages between Matt Hancock and senior officialdom. They're being taken out of context, says the former health secretary. But the Telegraph revelations and analysis, which began on Wednesday and are set to run for several days, will profoundly impact the upcoming public inquiry into lockdown, an inquiry that's been glacially slow to get going. We're feeling a bit smug, aren't we, co-pilot? Because it turns out the CIA and pretty much the entire US intelligence establishment now reckons COVID did stem from a laboratory leak in Wuhan, not some batty wet market. Planet Normal said that in June 2020. Oh, yes based on conversations with the former head of British intelligence, Sir Richard Dearlove, and what abuse we endured. But before we get going, Alison, let's pay tribute, as you do so beautifully in your latest column, to the wonderful Betty Boothroyd, House of Commons Speaker from 1992 to 2000, a parliamentarian not just of integrity and substance, but of beauty and style. Politics is meant to be showbiz for ugly people, and she was showbiz as well as being a superbly even-handed common speaker. To misquote the Bard co-pilot, shall we look upon her like again? Oh, I love a bit of Betty, Liam. We miss her, don't we? To think she was succeeded by the ugly weasel Burkow, honestly. Betty and I shared a beauty therapist, which is uh, not (laughs) something... A cross-party beauty therapist, no doubt. (laughs) Not only a cross-party beauty therapist, but I think she was working better wonders on Betty than she was on me, (laughs) even though I was 30 years her junior. 
Yeah, but, you know, a great figure. And I think rightly people united in affectionate tribute. She was the first female Speaker of the House of Commons, although she very specifically said when the vote was coming in, she didn't want to be voted on for what she was born, a female. She said it would be bad to have a bad woman speaker, better not to have a bad woman speaker. So she was articulating all this women getting there on merit. And yeah, a fabulous figure and tremendously unpartisan. I think we heard tributes, didn't we, Liam, from across all sides of the house to this really marvellous person. I think my own personal scoop, I mean, I know it's a week of huge telegraph scoops, but my own scoop was that (laughs) Betty at the age of 86 had asked our mutual beauty therapist if she could have lash extensions. And she said, make me look like Minnie Mouse. (laughs) Hold the front page. Hold the front page. That's a much bigger story than lockdown diaries. Forget Matt Hancock (laughs) letting people with COVID into care homes. Absolutely wonderful figure who's left us. We shan't see her like again, I don't think. I got to know Betty because I was a political reporter for the FT while she was speaker. And so I'd go to drinks in her sumptuous, massive parliamentary flat. You could literally play badminton in her living room. And she once said to me, you've got very twinkly eyes. Why are you a journalist? You should be a film star. True story. (laughs) True story. My peak popularity. I must say, Alison, Penny Mordaunt's wonderful tribute to Betty Boothroyd as leader of the House. It was really politics at its best. A conservative front bencher paying tribute to a parliamentarian of huge standing, originally elected, of course, as a Labour MP. 50 years in Parliament, the Commons and the Lords. She was like the Pennines, said Penny Mordaunt, from which she hailed. She gave Parliament backbone. Oh, lovely. So we are feeling quite smug, aren't we, Alison? Not least because of news from Wuhan. Yes, well, it's looking like a very good period for the so-called conspiracy theorists, isn't it? Because (laughs) all of the conspiracies turn out to have been against us, not made up by us. I mean, barely a day goes by now, Liam, without someone revealing that something we got told off for saying on Planet Normal was indeed the God's own truth. And yes, one of the big sort of international stories of the week was that the... CIA has essentially said it's most likely that COVID originated in that Wuhan bat virus lab for Wuhan bat viruses was, was, was not terribly well disguised as a coronavirus centre. Or Planet Normal listeners will recall with great pleasure the interview we did with Sir Richard Dearlove, former head of MI6, where he, with huge foresight and wisdom, described COVID as an engineered escapee. That's worth stressing, isn't it? It wasn't an aggressive leak at all, because, of course, China's own economy was really damaged badly by uh, lockdown. It was a mistake that you had engineers, scientists in that lab, a lab partly funded by the Western world, it should be Mm, said, who were investigating different forms of viruses for civilian and medical reasons rather than military reasons. And the sense is, the likelihood is now, almost a consensus now among very well-informed people, that the virus accidentally escaped. But, Liam, it was a very dark and twisted tale. There are links, as you say, that the Wuhan lab was undertaking research work, gain-of-function research. And there were some of our own scientists who we won't name at the moment 
and early attempts by the Lancet magazine, which we covered, to close down this impertinent line of speculation that COVID had originated in a lab. So very, very murky. And we must pay tribute to you, Alison, because that was your interview with Sir Richard Deal. I've planned it. Normal listeners can go back through our archive. That was in June 2020. As I said, it was literally only our second ever episode of Planet Normal. It's also worth listening to the excellent Matt Ridley, who we had on the Rocket Mm. of Right Thinking in November 2021, who, of course, has brought out a book on the origins of COVID. Again, a book that was heavily criticised when it came out. It's looking pretty good now. Certainly is. So as you said, Dim, the huge story of the week is the Telegraph's fantastic coup. And this comes courtesy of the amazing, very, very talented journalist, Isabel Oakeshott, who has passed to the Telegraph thousands and thousands of WhatsApp messages between Matt Hancock when he was the Secretary of State for Health and various officials, which gives us a completely riveting, not to mention jaw-dropping account of, I'm not sure that the planning would be the right word really, but the sort of self-justifying mayhem, arrogant self-advancement that was going on in government circles when, let us never forget, the government forced the nation into lockdown, you know, unprecedented limits on civil liberties and so on. So these extraordinary lockdown files, which the Telegraph will be publishing over the next few days, they give us this unique insight into what was going on. And I think, Liam, that the reason this is so much in the public interest to make these private messages public is the public has a right to know what was the basis on which the government forced the country into lockdown. There are extremely difficult questions now for ministers about the decisions that they made on citizens' behalf. What do you make of it, Liam? Well, I think we should say that this is a very complicated story and Planet Normal listeners can read Isabel Oakeshott's piece that was published by The Telegraph on Wednesday. Link is in the show notes to this episode. I had to release Matt Hancock's COVID WhatsApp messages to avoid a whitewash, she Mm. says. And her whole point is that the public inquiry into lockdown, something that we've often highlighted, Alison, where is it? (laughs) Where, Where is it? Isabel points out that Sweden had its own public inquiry wrapped up a year ago. The French didn't hang around with their public inquiry. Also, that's made huge progress, as has the Italians' public inquiry. And yet we are still basically arguing about the terms of reference of our public inquiry. And groups like yours, journalists like you, Planet Normal, Molly Kingsley and her team at Us For Them, another key campaigning group, have been calling for the terms to include the impact of lockdown on kids, to include the impact on schools and all the rest of it. And it's not yet clear to me that those things are going to be included. So Isabel's explanation for why she released these WhatsApp messages originally given to her by Matt Hancock as she collaborated on his book is there under that link. But we must also say, Alison, as the fair-minded journalist that we are, that according to Matt Hancock, there is another side of the story. And I just want to read out what Matt Hancock's spokesman has said. I think we do need to do this before we carry on this discussion. So these stolen messages, says Hancock, have been doctored to create a false story that 
Matt Hancock rejected clinical advice on home care testing. This is flat wrong, says the statement. On the 14th of April, he received a response to his request for advice from the chief medical officer that testing was needed for people going into care homes, which he enthusiastically accepted. Later that day, he convened an operational meeting on delivering testing for care homes where he was advised it was not currently possible to test everyone entering care homes, which he also accepted. Matt concluded, he was of course Secretary of State at the time for Health, that the testing of people leaving hospital for care homes should be prioritised because of the high risks of transmission, as it wasn't possible to mandate everyone going into care homes got tested. The Telegraph says Hancock have doctored messages by excluding a key line from the text by Alan Nixon, one of the Secretary of State's official. Nixon says, I wasn't in the testing meeting, which changes the context, according to Hancock, of the exchange depicted in the article. It demonstrates there was a meeting at which advice on deliverability was given. By omitting this, the messages imply Matt simply overruled clinical advice, which is, in his words, categorically untrue. He went as fast as possible to expand testing and save lives. That is Matt Hancock's line, and he is for now sticking to it. We are, of course, obliged as journalists to read that out. He isn't here in order to defend himself. I have to say, though, Alison, there is so much in these messages, and I think they are going to profoundly impact the upcoming public inquiry as and when it really gets going. And it may be that the entire shape, trajectory, even outcome of the public inquiry is different because of the decision made by Isabel to release these messages and by the Telegraph to publish these messages. Well, I jolly well hope so, Liam, because what we are seeing, which is very disturbing, is the COVID inquiry, as you say, it's taken 18 months to even agree on terms of reference. I mean, talk about kicking it into the long grass. And they have got these things called core participants. And we are seeing groups like Independent Sage, which I think is a left-wing group, which lobbied for the harshest possible lockdown measures. Very, very uh, paltry representation, as far as I can see from our side. Very little inclination to look into what Laura Dodsworth uncovered in her terrific book, State of Fear, about the nudge unit, the use of fear tactics, project fear, to coerce, to achieve complicity in these measures by the population, denying them proper balanced information. And I think one of the very interesting things, I mean, obviously we're on day two now when the podcast is going out and day two is going to be devoted to the leaks or the WhatsApp messages about schools, the closure of schools. We know already from Isabella Matt Hancock's book that the reason children in British English secondary schools were forced into wearing masks was because Nicola Sturgeon had introduced a mandate in Scotland and so they decided they couldn't be left behind. There was no scientific base for putting children into masks. It was purely political expediency. Let's copy her. Absolutely pathetic and outrageous given all the adverse effects this has had. So today, a change of tack. Yesterday was the care homes. Today, it's schools. But I think one of the things that's coming through from Isabel Oakeshott's revelations is that once politicians had been making these decisions very quickly on the hoof, but then a tremendous reluctance to admit that they'd been wrong. So say they'd said, you have to self-isolate for this period of time. 
if it turned out that that was wrong, that in fact it could be a much, much shorter period of time or, you know, in certain cases might not be necessary at all. Inability, political unwillingness to cause themselves the political embarrassment of saying, actually, you could walk your dog more than once a day, but let's not tell them that because if we tell them that, we'll look stupid. So it's better that they only walk their dog once a day. And before I hand over to you, Liam, let me just say that one of the things I watched during the pandemic with absolute horror, Planet Normal listeners will obviously remember the wonderful story of Robert Styler and Josephine, where Robert was unable to gain access to his wife of many, many years in a care home. And Robert kept emailing us saying, why can't I go in and see Josie when care home workers are walking in and out, going home to their families? I'm isolating. Why can't I see my wife and Planet Normal? lobbied very heavily for Robert. And he did indeed have one last dinner with uh, Josephine before she died. But one of the things that we've seen in the lockdown files is that social care minister then, Helen Whateley, was repeatedly warning Matt Hancock that the restrictions on care home visits were inhumane. Residents were being left isolated for months. In October 2020, according to the leaks in the Telegraph, Helen WhatsApped Hancock warning against preventing husbands seeing wives. People were, according to Helen Whateley, giving up hope. Let's remind ourselves, Liam, that Matt Hancock ignored those warnings and care homes only returned to something like normal visiting in July 2021. So that's one example of why these revelations are so incredibly important. We should stress, as Isabel does in her article, Alison, that to his credit, when Hancock and Isabel had finished their book and it was subject to the official vetting by the Cabinet Office, because he was a Cabinet Minister who'd recently stepped down, that them's is the rules... There were lots of changes, but in Isabel's word, Hancock pushed back hard in favour of disclosure. That is to his credit. He was trying to be open to some extent, and we should say that in fairness. But I do think there are going to be many embarrassing revelations about what Lord Frost dubbed on Planet Normal COVID theatre, forcing the public to do certain things, whatever the inconvenience, whatever Mm. the economic cost, in order to maintain this idea that ministers were always right and they were just following the science. And as well as sort of political cost, I also think there may arise the question of legal culpability of damages Mm. being pursued by certain quarters in response to government policy if it turns out the policy wasn't built on a reasonable interpretation of the scientific evidence at the time. So it's an absolutely enormous story and it's tribute to the importance of the story that it's just wiped off all the front pages, ongoing analysis of what happened earlier in the week, of course, which was Rishi Sunak unveiling a new deal between the UK and the EU when it comes to Northern Ireland. Ordinarily, We would be all over that deal, Mm. pursuing various thoughts and leads about the implications of the legal text and so on. But there's almost silence on that because everybody now is so fixated on these lockdown files. 
Yes, that's right, Liam. It has wiped it off the front pages. Before we go on to the protocol, of course, which Lord Frost, David Frost, prime mover in these matters, has expressed strong views in the Telegraph yesterday as well. But can I just end up by quoting Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, Telegraph columnist, writing about the lockdown files. He said, for all the claims to be following the science, the lockdown files show how often the diktats were political guesswork masquerading as science. And that was something that our own science editor, Sarah Napton, told us on Planet Normal just a few weeks ago, wasn't it, Liam? That stuff that was being discussed behind the scenes with Sarah, almost comical admissions that some of the restrictions were pretty ludicrous. These measures were then advanced with a straight face at these media briefings. And before we move on, Liam, I just want to say that it was a very turbulent And bruising period for you and I and for the very few journalists who attempted to do journalism. I mean, it's that bad, really. I think it's been an absolutely disgraceful period for our trade. And we are now finally starting to see some of the furious lines of inquiry and challenge that would have been very, very nice to have been seeing in the spring of 2020. Anyway, we will undoubtedly be returning to this. I'm hoping that Isabel Oakeshott will come on to the podcast to talk about it. But coming back to this, what we must call the Windsor Framework... (laughs) Sounds like the royal clothesline, doesn't it, really? Close horse. The winds of framework. David Frost said it's a bitter pill to swallow. You know a lot more about this than I do, Liam. Can you tell us quickly, is this a really good deal as it's being sold enthusiastically by Rishi or is it the same old, same old with a nice lick of paint? Well, one of our favourite aphorisms about Northern Ireland is that if you're not confused, you don't really understand what's going on. (laughs) And it is very, very complex I think the essence of this deal, and of course everybody is still going through the labyrinthine texts and so on, there seems to be quite a lot of discrepancy between the text that the British side released and the text that the EU side released. The essence of it is that even though it will be easier to import goods from GB into Northern Ireland, so it's important goods within the UK, even in the so-called Green Channel, there will still be checks, checks on about 10% of goods going through. That seems to be what the document is saying. The ECJ, the European Court of Justice, will still hold sway in Northern Ireland. The so-called Stormont Break, which allows the Assembly of Northern Ireland to stop any particular law that the ECJ is bringing in in Northern Ireland, will be used, quote, only in very exceptional circumstances, according to the text released by the EU side. And it strikes me that The whole point of Brexit is divergence, the idea that we can make our own laws that Mm. are different from the EU's laws, partly in order to make ourselves more competitive. And the EU, of course, is petrified about that because we tend to be, when we get going, quite a competitive place. And the problem is those new laws won't apply in Northern Ireland. And, Mm. And this is the danger that politicians going forward will be scared to diverge from the EU on GB, on the mainland, if you like, because it will just expose the extent to which you can't do it in Northern Ireland. So by retaining control over Northern Ireland, and Ursula von der Leyen has been telling the continental press, if you like, that the protocol basically stays in place. Not much has changed. It is just a new lick of paint. What it will do will prevent the UK as a whole and GB in particular 
making those changes that Brexit was meant to be all about, making us a more dynamic, more competitive, more growth-oriented economy, as is our kind of national inclination to be. So as I've said many times, Alison, I think the whole thing is a contrived hoax. The whole notion that you need to massively protect the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The invisible border is already there. It's very effective. You can have trusted trader schemes, derogations for small firms. You can have limited behind-the-border checks. You do not need infrastructure on the border. And it's a denial of that reality that I just said, a reality borne out by many, many academic studies, a reality initially acknowledged by the Republic of Ireland's own tax and border institutions under Enda Kenny in the first few months after Brexit, before Leo Varadkar came in as Taoiseach. And now, of course, he's back as Taoiseach. It strikes me that this is an ongoing power grab by the European Commission in order to make Brexit as difficult as possible. And even though Prince Charles breaks bread and has tea with Ursula van der Leyen, I can't see the DUP accepting it. And for that reason, I can't see Stormont getting back up and running, which raises major issues for the delivery of public services in Northern Ireland, for the governance of Northern Ireland. So the mood music was pretty good before the lockdown files wiped this off the front pages, but I do not think we're nearly there yet. There has been progress made, but I don't think it's nearly as smooth and elegant an outcome as we're currently being led to believe. I really appreciate listening to you on that because I think that you're saying stuff that we're not being told. And I think you're digging down into it using your very deep knowledge of these things. I mean, it is true, isn't it, that Sunak can get this through the Commons without the DUP. Labour is fully on standby. I did think that the smiles on the faces of the Remainers and the cat got the cream grin on the face of Ursula von der Leyen, not just because she was a bit sweet on our Rishi, but I think (laughs) they were looking jolly pleased to themselves. So whether this turns out to be a sort of backdoor for the Remainers, and I think we should remember, Liam, also that We are where we are because I think Boris and Lord Frost would have wanted to play more hardball. They would have liked to have had the option of no deal, wouldn't they? They'd like to have just withdrawn on WTO terms, but that choice was taken away from them by members of parliament, predominantly remain a parliament. So I think we ended up in a much weaker position. I think, Alison, that is unanswerably true. If Frost and Johnson hadn't gone for the deal as it was at that point, Mm. we would have ended up with no Brexit at all, which I personally think would have been a democratic disaster because a whole swathe of the British public, including lots of people who voted Remain, who rejected the idea of a second referendum, uh, would have been deeply disillusioned. The situation we're in now is Night, you know, the Daily Star summed it up so well as they so often do on their front page <laughs> the morning <laughs> after Rishi's deal. It was something or other about Brexit. That was their headline, page two. <laughs> because for the vast majority of people who are normal and don't nerd on about these things the way we do, they just want an end to Brexit. Brexit's led to arguments in their house. Their friends are all sick of it. No one wants to talk about it anymore. Stop going on about it. Most people who live in the UK, with all due respect to a wonderful part of the UK, have never even been to Northern Ireland. No. It's just make it stop, make it stop. Yeah. And that's what Sunak is banking on, that he's going to be able to force the ERG 
to just go along with this so he doesn't have to rely on Labour votes to get this through with maybe a nod and the wink to them. If we can do this, we can stop the Brexit wars, we can win the next election, then we can open up this deal again. Because what this deal does show is that deals can be opened up if you try hard enough. And I think that is one of the cardinal lessons that a lot of the Eurosceptics will take away from this if they do hold their noses and vote this through. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Our guest on The Rocket this week is a marvellous teacher and education specialist called Alka Segal Cuthbert. Alka is a director of Don't Divide Us, which describes itself as the UK's common sense voice on race. Alka's family came to the UK from India in the early 60s. She lived in the upwardly mobile working class suburb of Hyams Park, where hers was one of only two non-white families. The young Alka adored school and said she wasn't even aware that she wasn't white until secondary school. I hate this woke ideology on race, Alka says, because it would have me rewrite my personal narrative that doesn't feel true or authentic. Singing hymns in assembly was a joy, not an act of cultural oppression. I think you're going to really love this guest, Liam. She's absolutely our kind of woman. Alka's professional career began 30 years ago as an English teacher in an inner London secondary school. Later, she did a PhD at Cambridge in philosophy and sociology of education. Alka now writes extensively on educational issues, including a book published by the Institute of Education, What Should Schools Teach? Disciplines, Subjects and the Pursuit of Truth. Alka Segal Cuthbert has grown increasingly alarmed by equity, diversity and inclusion initiatives in schools, which she sees as antithetical to the truly liberal education which she loves. Don't Divide Us's latest campaign is called Educate, Not Indoctrinate. So I began by asking Alka why our children are being taught things like critical race theory in schools and what harm she thinks that might be doing? Why it's happening, I think there are a set of different kind of reasons that have converged together to create this very special, rather horrible moment. And that's to do with internal weaknesses within education for decades. I don't think any political party has really taken the idea of education seriously and what it means to educate and socialise the young. There's been a kind of intellectual deficit within the disciplines themselves and a confusion, I think, in the profession as to exactly what teachers should be teaching and why and how. And instead, you've got a very technocratic approach to that. And then, of course, you've got the kind of more recent, almost like a political implosion or a democratic deficit. And there's a layer, I think, of a new managerial class who have been brought up in an educational and cultural atmosphere which has completely turned its back 
on the values of the Enlightenment that most people agree with. For example, you treat people as equals, irrespective of their colour. That's a very basic belief that most people believe in, just like teachers should teach impartially. And it's got us very far in terms of social and moral progress as a society. I mean, Britain has a very good track record on this, and no one in Britain should be on the defensive about this. And yet we see time and time again, you know, from head teachers to local councillors to national politicians, completely caving in at the first accusation of Britain being systematically racist. And it's just not true. How widespread is this kind of what we could call indoctrination in our schools? You know, I don't want to get all technical about methodologies, but there's a very key point of method when you're trying to understand or explain or describe society. One way of doing it is through numbers and you just interview every single school and see what they're doing. That is impossible. It's certainly impossible for a a team like Don't Divide Us. But there's a different way of analysing these things. And that is if you look at the institutions, different levels and what we see, what are they saying? What are their policies? And what we're seeing happening from top right down to the bottom, that is from government level civil service, local councillors, the main exam boards, AQA, right down to sort of local schools. Even if they say they're not using CRT, that's critical race theory, explicitly, which they may not be, the core anti-patriotic belief at the heart of this, that Britain is systematically and institutionally racist and that the majority of its population who happen to be white, have partaken of this history and continue to benefit from this sordid history, that is kind of accepted. If you go to your school's website and look at their equality statement or their anti-racist statement, it's very unlikely you won't find a sentence bunged in there saying, of course, we are an anti-racist school. Now, if you're saying that as a kind of throwaway comment, then that can only mean that you think that there is a problem of racism that the school needs to address. And yet when you ask them, which I have done, I've gone to heads and I've said, well, you're introducing some fairly sweeping changes here. What problem have you had of racism in your school that's led you to take this action? And they've absolutely failed. Not one head has given me a satisfactory answer that there's a problem of racism. What they do refer to is, oh, statistics show we're underrepresenting, and they then go into a question of, you know, statistical disparities that is not an adequate answer, really. So when you say how widespread is it, I would say it might not be happening at your local school right now, but all the official people responsible for education, there isn't really anybody there who's challenging this who's stopping it. So it will roll out unless it's stopped. You sent me, Alka, an extraordinary photo of a book display in a primary school in rural Cambridgeshire. And nearly every book on that display was about slavery or racism or skin colour. Now, this was at a school with obviously young children where the majority of pupils were white and, as it happens, from Eastern Europe. Now, what are the teachers who put up that display thinking? Are they just thinking, this means I'm a very nice, sensitive person who is basically going with the fashion, going with what the trend is? I think what happens is a knee-jerk reaction 
on the part of certain staff members of the school to be seen to A, doing something to improve the diversity of their reading, whatever that may mean. They've been criticised for the diversity of their reading. And instead of calmly asking the uh, person inspecting them, well, what do you mean by that? They just kind of automatically took on the commonplace assumption that that must mean we're a bit racist, we've got to show that we're not. It's a kind of combination of being rather not intellectual enough, and you're a teacher, so it's your job to be intellectual, and also just going for the quick, supposedly ethical answer of let's show how good we are, what good people we are, how we mean well. Not even thinking what that might do to the pupils, what implicit messages there are. People would say, what's wrong with these equality, diversity and inclusion initiatives in schools? Aren't they just about creating a fairer, more sensitive society? Unfortunately, that is a fairly common interpretation of equity, diversity and inclusion. But I think we really have to you know, be much more assertive and confident about saying equity means equity of outcomes. It doesn't mean equal access or equal opportunity. It means you want everybody to actually come away with the same. And if you think about it, that's a really stupid idea. We are all different. And it's because we're all different that we are not all going to come out of any process, whether that's the process of being a kid with parents or a pupil in a school, coming out the same, precisely because we are different. What it's actually doing is an attack on the kind of established normal belief. There's a common standard. As a kid, you go to school and you might be black, brown, white or any combination of colours. And you might be rich, poor or middle class and your parents might read Shakespeare or they might just read The Sun. But when you go into school, you are going into a different world, a world of education. And there are different rules and standards that the adults there need to apply so that everybody can be educated. And what equity is doing is just sort of dismantling that at one stroke and saying none of that matters. The common standards, the common rules don't matter. You have to treat this particular group of individuals according to the colour of their skin differently. Yeah. Diversity does not mean the pluralism, diversity of viewpoints and ideas. You look at what's happening. It's the exact opposite. It's narrowing down. With Don't Divide Us, your organisation, the latest campaign is called Educate, Not Indoctrinate. I know you're planning to launch a petition on this very, very important issue. And they're going to be producing a report on the third party organisations offering so-called anti-racist training in schools. I'm really interested in this. Who are these third-party providers providing material to schools and indeed businesses on trans, on racism? Are these organisations politically motivated and are they making a lot of money? I think it varies. They vary from sort of two women in a dog outfits and they'll be sort of local, you know, usually quite young and they are committed to a critical social justice causes, whether it's around gender or race, and they get, often go both together. And then they range from that to organisations that are very well funded. They have backing from Silicon Valley corporates, some of them. Flair, for example, is one that is used in many schools, including top public schools, and it presents itself and some heads have presented their use of flair 
as a data analyst company. They do use a lot of data, right? They, they use quantitative methods that are based on the most, you know, mind-numbingly boring and reductive questions like online multiple choice. Do you know what white privilege is? When you start seeing that language, you should really be alert that we are not talking about something that is politically neutral. Whether people are doing it intentionally or not, this is a partisan ideology. And these companies, their qualifications are varied. Very few are real scholars of education or disciplinary experts. Often they'll have a clutch of qualifications, possibly in a very kind of loose educational business or educational studies type thing. They're small businesses, right? And they're selling uh, like a moral badge to schools that has absolutely no place anywhere in society, but least of all schools, least of all places where, you know, we're meant to be teaching the young how to think and how to judge and how to use their intelligence, their own moral feelings and their imagination to come to their own judgments, not just accept a pre-formulated, pre-packaged ideology on race and gender that is not even true. You know, you can't change your sex. So why are schools telling the kids that they can? And Britain isn't systematically racist. So why are schools telling the children that it is? You know, it's so so harmful, so harmful in the longer term. Alka, this week we've seen four boys suspended from a high school in Yorkshire for causing cosmetic damage to a copy of the Quran. The head teacher has said there was no malicious intent by those involved. It seems to have been a bit of teenage silliness, yet leaders of the local Muslim community were not satisfied with that explanation. They're calling for police to take swift and appropriate action to deal with this grave situation. What's your take on that teenage fracas being blown up into a sort of major hate incident? I think it's appalling. I think it's appalling in every single way. There is not one positive thing to be said about this. You know, politically, it's just going to be stoking up grievances all round. It's a terrible abdication of adult duty to children. Imagine doing this and making young children, or in this case, young teenagers, feel like they're responsible for causing this societal hatred. It's awful when you put that responsibility. We have childhood and we have adolescence for a reason, you know, to protect that particular group of people while they're still developing. And instead of respecting that, what we're now seeing happening in incidents like this is sort of letting the outside world and all the politicking, you know, just like be dumped onto schools. It's a real bugbear of mine when you have certain Muslim leaders referring to the community. They don't mean the wider community, do they? Absolutely not. No, I mean, we have to realise that there are groups of so-called community leaders who have been cultivated over the years, probably by across all the political mainstream parties, to be the representative voice piece of the wider community. When, as you say, they're not, they're usually the most socially conservative sides of things. You know, most of my Muslim women friends are like appalled you know it's like just dreadful just moving on we've just had another row haven't we of puffin books using sensitivity readers so-called to remove unpleasant or contentious words 
from the works of Roald Dahl, these anarchic, very funny, sometimes rude books, which you and I, as English teachers, will know that kids do adore. What did you think about that censorship in the name of so-called protecting children? I think it's just pitifully ignorant. Politically, it's authoritarian. It is censorship. I think, you know, aesthetically, it's totally ignorant. It shows no understanding of how literature works. And I think in terms of child development, it shows absolutely no understanding of how children develop their sense of ethics and morality precisely through their imagination. The bigger and richer the imaginative material that we can introduce them to under our adult guidance, the richer that their inner lives will be. And if you're going to strip that out to make it sanitized according to your adult highly politicised idea of what is acceptable, you are denying children the chance to engage with exactly those kinds of ideas, you know, and the pleasure of transgression in a way that's safe. You know, if you're going to deny that, then I don't think we should be surprised if 10 years down the line, they're transgressing in a way that is more literal. I mean, that can be a bit alarmist, I know. And, I, you know, that's a bit speculative, or it's highly speculative of me. But I do think we need to take children's imagination seriously and we need to understand that good literature is exactly that literature that is complex, that is both naughty and wonderful, that is both ugly and beautiful, in a language that appeals to everybody, you know, given a good translation if it's not written in English. You sound like the ideal English teacher to me. Finally, Alka, we're talking in a good-humoured way, but it seems to me to be genuinely alarming, you know, the sort of vein of thinking is becoming embedded in schools and perhaps parents are are unaware of how much their children are being brainwashed. What can parents and grandparents who are upset about this do to support you and don't divide us in your fantastic efforts? Thank you, Alison. I love being a teacher. If it wasn't for this, I'd be teaching. But um, anyway, I think it's really important that people understand the seriousness of this. We are not talking about a few outliers. This is a trend that is getting more entrenched day by day. If you are a parent or a teacher and you have any concerns about what is being taught to children or the way it's being taught to children, if Shakespeare is being introduced to a class as a white supremacist, then, you know, as a teacher, I would be like, alarm bells would be going. Get in touch with us at, you know, don'tdivideus.com. Or if it's around gender, there are lots of other groups working in this field around gender too. Get in touch. Keep copies of letters. Take photos of homework. I know it can sound conspiratorial, but really it's got to this point. So we might as well just accept it and understand We've got to do something about it. The Department of Education isn't going to do much about it. We don't know if any of the politicians can. So it's down to us. Keep a record. In the first instance, always go in good faith and raise concerns with the school. But we are finding very few parents who've had success with that. And I think, like I said, you keep records, you take the screenshots, you send them in to us. We can talk with you. We can send speakers if you want to have a coffee morning or a meeting in the pub and you want to discuss it will help. So I really hate to say this as a teacher, but really, you know, you can't trust the schools to not be doing this because the pressures around them are so much for them to be doing this. And ask yourself, do you think schools should be teaching that 
children that Britain is racist? Do you think schools should be teaching children that they can change their sex? Now, if you say no to either of those questions, then you need to be alert because that is what is happening in schools. Well, Alka, I know that Liam will be absolutely on side with me in supporting you in everything you do. This is something I know also that the wider listeners of Planet Normal in the cause of greater sanity will be really cheering you on. And anyway, such a pleasure to talk to an inspiring campaigner and fellow English teacher, Alka Segal-Cusper. Thank you for being our guest on Planet Normal. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you. Alka talks in a calm way, Liam, but I actually think what she's talking about is one of the biggest issues of our day. I think she's talking about the planned cultural partisan indoctrination of children in schools. And this is coming out of the institutions, as Alka said. It's coming out of teacher training. It's coming out of universities. And it's actually infiltrated the highest levels of government. And there are these third party providers who, as Alka mentioned, basically are giving moral badges to schools to teach things that the vast majority of British parents would never agree with. I must say I agree with you, Alison. I think there has been a bit of pushback among the general population, as we saw in Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon got herself into such a mess with gender identity, as we're seeing among the sports bodies, where they're starting to adhere to a modicum of common sense when it comes to the grotesque injustice of female-born competitors having to compete with male-born competitors who have, quotes, transitioned. And yet when it comes to our institutions, the civil service, a lot of virtue signaling big business, and even the teaching profession, or some very militant parts of the teaching profession, who are bullying a lot more of the teaching profession into submission, they seem to be doubling down on critical race theory, other ideologies, which really alarm and even, I use this word with regret, disgust a lot of the population, that their children are being exposed in many cases to complete nonsense, which when it comes to race in particular, seems determined to be as divisive as possible. Look, I grew up in a really, really multicultural environment. I grew up in a pretty blue-collar part of Brent in the 1970s, when Brent in northwest London was the most ethnically diverse part of the United Kingdom, bar none. And I'm so proud of the fact that in my primary school classes, there were kids who were all the colours of the rainbow from all parts of the world. We had Afghan refugees, we had Cypriots, we had people from the Indian subcontinent, we had people from Jamaica and the rest of the Caribbean, we had a few, you know, Irish waifs and strays like my family. <laughs> and we just got on. And some of those people have had a very different life from almost all of them, but we remain great friends to this day based on our differences and the fact that we grew up in and out of each other's houses, exploring each other's cultures. It didn't matter where your mate came from or where her mum came from, as long as you got an ice cream. You know, it yeah. really didn't matter. And it seems to me that the teaching profession back then was so much better at just letting nature take its course. Kids aren't born racist. 
and divisive. They learn that from adults. And it strikes me that a lot of what teachers are trying to do, and I would like to say often with the best intentions, and many teachers do have the best intentions, but some teachers are radicalised and deeply ideological about this. And it's not good for basic British tolerance, multiculturalism. We are among the most tolerant, most successfully integrated countries in the world. Of course, there are many, many, many problems, but I don't see how this ridiculously heavy-handed series of interventions by the teaching professions are going to do anything to alleviate those problems. You remember the great song, which is little known actually from South Pacific. I'm a huge Rodgers and Hammerstein fan. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. Moment of profundity and a beautiful musical. And we'll be keeping Planet Normal listeners up to date with what Alka, Siegel, Cusper and Don't Divide Us are doing. I'm sure lots of people will want to support them. They've got a petition coming soon to go to the government. So we'll provide you with details about that. Now it's time for our listener emails, your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading your thoughts. Obviously, a lot this week, very quick reaction from various people on the Telegraph scoop of the lockdown files. Robert says, political expediency always seemingly trumps transparency. What Matt Hancock meant with his protective ring around care homes was really to say that the country was woefully unprepared, but we are scrabbling around doing the best we can with limited resources instead of frankly lying. This was compounded by dogmatic drowning out of dissenting voices such as the Great Barrington Declaration. The government, therefore, deserves no slack whatsoever. It imposed utterly draconian controls on the population ruthlessly enforced by the police to the minutiae whilst electing to ignore and denigrate respected epidemiologists. Meanwhile, Hancock played his opt-out joker card pleading the love of my life a new relationship gambit. Tawdry conduct. Carpe says, this is very good, Liam. Lockdown was comfortably the most spectacularly moronic public health policy enacted in recorded history, a failure that could have been avoided by the basic safety net of a cost-benefit analysis. Instead, we had a government of scientifically illiterate cowards slavishly following popularity polls. We have a political class composed of liars, charlatans and dross united in utter and complete ineptitude. (laughs) Say what you think, Carpe. And now we are paying the price. Excess deaths due to the NHS turning itself into a single disease service are now costing far more life years than were ever supposedly saved. Isn't it typical of Conservatives' labour that the COVID inquiry is already a very slow-running joke, that civil servants' names have been blocked out? The sad fact is our politicians and civil service mandarins are utterly third-rate trash. We deserve better. This is from Chris. I'm waiting for the real dirt on lockdown. There must be plenty of back and forth about how none of it worked and they just demanded more and more. Lockdowns, utter failure. Masks, utter failure. Track and trace, utter failure. Distancing and insane rules, utter failure. (laughs) International travel bans, utter failure. Sweden did relatively nothing. 
yet its mortality graph mirrors our own exactly per capita, says Chris. And Nicole says, I used to volunteer at my local primary school in the East Midlands, listening to seven-year-olds reading. The majority of the books available weren't the cosy, homely ones with lovely illustrations, but as you said on Planet Normal, diverse and inclusive, with not very interesting stories of mixed-race families, single-parent families, so boring. I used to give the children normal books if I could find them in the library, but the display shelves were full of these awful books with titles like, Are You Being Bullied? It's So Depressing. I often took them off the display shelf and replaced them with the rare normal children's books. Hopefully teacher didn't find out. Best wishes and thanks for a great weekly podcast, says Nicole. By the way, bit of a sneak preview. I am heading off to Sweden soon, co-pilot, to do an interview for us with the with the great and sane epidemiologist Anders Tegnell, the only man in the world to actually follow the World Health Organization pandemic plan. So we'll look forward to that very much in a few weeks. Mike says, Dear Alison and Liam, I love your podcast and have listened to every single episode. Forgive me for being a pedant. Uh-oh, Halligan, here goes. One medium, several media. One phenomenon, several phenomena, both in today's episode. Oh, my God. I'm an English teacher, Halligan. How can this have been allowed? Please keep up the good work. Well, Mike, we will endeavour to get our plurals in the right place. And Tony says, I'm a great fan of Planet Normal. My wife and I follow GB News with great enthusiasm, especially Liam's economic stuff. We both read Alison's Wednesday column in The Telegraph. Your interview with Dr. Jerome Booth was both refreshing and worrying. My two main groupthink concerns were lockdown, evident within the dependency on SAGE and their recommendations, and currently the hysteria over net zero. Groupthink is almost as contagious as some of the worst medical conditions. Worryingly, it seems to prevail within government, especially, as Liam frequently points out, within the Treasury. Jerome's book should be compulsory reading for civil servants, MPs and scientists. The cancel culture is probably compounding the evils of groupthink. It's certainly true, co-pilot, that from the lockdown files, which you can read on the Daily Telegraph website, that groupthink is certainly being pointed out by Isabel Oakeshott as one of the real villains of the whole pandemic. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn. I think it's got to be Nicole, who likes reading books about Janet and John and Ladybird books, not books about whether or not you're being bullied. So, Nicole, send us an email, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put mug winner in the subject heading of your email and give us your postal address and that rare as rocking horse blue planet normal mug will wing its way to you if you enjoy planet normal we jolly well hope you do please leave us a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify the co-pilot often spends many hours browsing them to burnish his very very small ego it does help it also helps other listeners to find us so the planet normal family can grow And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and finally to our editor, No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. It is she and to whom we must now pay tribute because after putting in a fabulous shift in the engine room of the Rocket of Right Thinking, she is now off to journalistic pastures new and she will be missed. Meanwhile, stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. (laughs) 